What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined today with the Wisecrack crew. We got Austin. Yo! And Jacob. Hello, hello! And joining us again, it's been quite a while, is Helen. Hey, everybody! So today, we're talking about The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, the 2019 film directed by Alex Gibney. This just came out this week on HBO about the whole Theranos-Elizabeth Holmes debacle. Let's go ahead and get some first impressions. What do you think of the documentary? And give me an idea of your general awareness of this event. Let's start with Austin since it's been a while. What do you think? Uh, Yeah. So first of all, I just need to say I love Alex Gibney as a documentary filmmaker. I think he's kind of, you know, if, if there are some documentaries that are kind of like running gun, guerrilla style shooting, and his always are very polished. He's kind of like the fincher of documentaries in my mind. You know, it's very clean, very precise. His stories are always really managed. I love him as a documentary filmmaker for the most part. I didn't like this documentary from a filmic mm. or cinematic perspective. I kind of didn't really find it that informationally stimulating. I think anything you want to learn, you can find out by watching a couple of YouTube videos or listening to The Dropout, the podcast series. And maybe that was my problem. Maybe I just, I, I learned a little too much. So I wasn't, there were no revelations to me. There was nothing profound that was revealed about Elizabeth, um, about the company, about some of the uh, fraudulent behaviors. There was nothing really profound that I felt that the film delivered to me and I kind of thought some of the graphics like the computer graphics were a little chintzy I don't know man it just <laughs> felt it kind of felt like they were like hey Alex we need you to rush this out and um you got six months to do it, it that's what it felt it felt just very rushed and I don't know I didn't but why why now is it now more relevant than it was than it would be in like five months. Well, that's the thing. I don't I've know. got a theory. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just the, wanted to speak like Elizabeth, but I've got a theory as to why now is important. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's I hear mean, it. Yeah. I, I, it's going to be very hard for me to keep this baritone. She's much lower <laughs> than I ever have been in my whole life. But I think there's something about uh, what's happening right now is sort of the focus on biographies of very bad people. Mm. So you had recently the R. Kelly documentary on Lifetime, mm -hmm. and we've just had the Michael Jackson documentary on HBO. And I think it was important the to Fire follow Fest. up with another uh, Fire Festival, of course. And now yeah. it's very important to follow up with another bad person documentary. So uh, this, I think HBO is also desperate for ratings. You have to yeah. think about how they stack up against Netflix that kind of has access to every film ever. I sound like I'm a wrestler here. Now, actually, it but sound, you are evoking Elizabeth. I'm kind of getting yeah. into, I'm I like getting it. into I'm it. So I'm getting I think into it's very important that we focus on why the timing is so important now because HBO is trying to change the world. And if you're trying to change the world, you oh, get Jesus. documentaries like this made Jesus. fast. Uh. <laughs> yeah. so thank you very much. You know what, brother? I think you're absolutely right, though. I think that's it. It's, you know, because you know, we look at it now from the public and we don't know when films are going to be released. But they all know what's in production because they had scripts bound, banded about. They're talking with other people. So they know what's coming out. So they know what's hot when. I think you're absolutely right. I'll bet right. you a they quarter. They to capitalize on the kind of <laughs> current historical moment with our obsession with the bio, the, the examination of biographies of like fraudulent people, bad people, et cetera, et cetera. That's right. Yeah, I think that you, you got to think really the context here is HBO has just sold to AT&T. They've def they've always been the people for the best like event television 
and they've lost that opportunity as Netflix is coming in and flooding the market and buying things like Roma and buying the best movies and getting great documentaries made. So HBO's got to do everything in their power to get people to tune in. And Michael Jackson's documentary was a total event. It got people to tune uh, in like yeah. crazy. For better or worse. For better or worse. But it was a total event. you got to think yeah. about the, the, the demand for that movie was very high. And they released it, what, two or three or four weeks after Sundance. So they, they, they struck the iron while it was hot. Yeah. And this is another movie. But I agree. It felt very rushed. Not that you asked my opinion yet, but it felt like a rushed film that didn't really have, like, it wasn't a story that I could follow very easily compared to, I read the John Kerry Rue book, and that was a much easier, it was more of a procedural, and you were seeing it in in uh, in order. You were seeing the story unfold, mm. like, in chronological order, and then seeing the deceit and the deception mount and escalate in a way that in this documentary, Jared and I were saying, like, it just feels like wait, she's 19, the next second she's 30, the next second we're back at the lab, the next minute Walgreens is out. Like, what? What's the timeline? Yeah, the timeline's real weird. It really lacked a cohesive narrative in that way. And it was, I haven't read the biography, but I remember following, you know, John Carreras kind of as the drip, drip, drip of information came out. And that was fascinating. You know, if you really want to go back and kind of see as things were happening, it's, you know, just reading his Wall Street Journal articles and getting that little bit of information at the time. And it's like, oh, where is this See, going? I wasn't around for that part. So, like, yeah. I, I didn't I wasn't I wasn't following Elizabeth. <laughs> Excuse me. I forgot my voice. Yeah. But I wasn't following her. I'm going to drop it in a second. But I, I wasn't following the whole story. I wasn't right. like obsessed with her. I wasn't following the story of Theranos. Mm-hmm. So I picked it up way after the fact once. I remember I read an article on uh an email or something came through saying how Theranos fell from like a nine billion dollar company to oh. worth nothing and to bankrupt. Yeah, less, like, than less than less nothing. Less than nothing. Yeah. I remember like, oh, that money. article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so right. I just I was like, oh, whoa! It's it was like the the day that the company dissolved that I read that article, and then that's when I got interested in Bad Blood, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. And so I oh, I wasn't there for yeah. seeing it as it happened, like. That must have been a crazy ride. Well, if you want a treat, go back and read the articles because it really is something. You know, the first one that they actually showed in the documentary, and and I didn't realize. I think she they said that she was being um, what inducted to Harvard's board. Of, yeah, 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 right. Board of trust or no, board, board of something. trustees. Yeah, some but... kind of honorary, you know, distinction. And and that article was like, you know, it was pretty pretty damning. And she did nothing, but she had she had this glow of the celebrity CEO that we are so you know, kind of um, fawn over now. And I think um, everybody was kind of drinking the Kool-Aid with yeah. her. She was fascinating. Oh, yeah. well, the, I was. A, a lot of, a lot of I mean, Kool-Aid was being passed around. All the Kool-Aid. A lot of Kool-Aid. Everybody drinking uh, the Kool-Aid. Well, hold on. Austin, are, are you done? Sorry, yeah. 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 yeah, we kind of cut you off there. I am never done, but I'm gonna I'm gonna stop because I think that's it. I just, <laughs> yeah. I'm just I'm just Jacob. I think, <laughs> I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I just feel like if you're trying to change the world, you got to step in and do whatever it takes. <laughs> we'll we'll unpack we'll unpack some of the themes obviously as we go into the main segment. I just at the outset, I just want to say how kind of like bummed out I am at at Gibney, like I because I love him as a filmmaker, and I just felt that this had no teeth. That's my kind of initial takeaway from the film. Okay, Jacob, what'd you think? Uh, similar, same thing. I thought the documentary was not great. I I found it entertaining enough. I actually really liked the graphic scenes, like the little graphics and motion graphics and animations and stuff. I thought having someone like Dan Ariely on, like the behavioral therapist or behaviorist on, was cool. Like that whole like the dice experiment was fascinating for me to get like this sort of uh, just a different perspective that I did not get in the John Kerry Rue book. The book, I will say, to me. Maybe it ruined the documentary. I'm not sure how much. I guess you said you already knew that, Austin. You already had like watched the the uh, or listened to the podcast and learned about the story. 
But to me, uh, the book just did a much better job of laying out the story, of getting into detail, into places like the Sonny character, who is quite pathological and very paranoid. He had a sexual relationship with Elizabeth Holmes that I thought was kind of fun and interesting to explore. There was like more detail of the Tyler Schultz and George Schultz, like that relationship with the grandson and his grandfather that was interesting that also unfolded more of like the kind of mania and craziness around that whole lawyer situation that they had. And there was a lot more uh, espionage feeling kind of uh, sort of, sort of a feeling. The Walgreens project was more elaborated on. And then overall, just the whole thing, like I said, kind of played more like a procedural. It just felt more, just easier to follow along. So I thought the book did a better job. And because it was investigative and it was like, it was once the lid already kind of got, got blown off of the story, that's where the book picks up. But I did, with that being said, I thought the documentary does a better job at like part two. Like once it kind of hits the second half, once you get into the John Kerry roof kind of part, I thought that was fun. And then it was cool to see Elizabeth Holmes. Like the book, you don't get that. Like you don't get all of those moments, those little bits of her in the interview and and not being able to tell a personal secret was awesome. Or uh, my favorite part, I think one of my favorite parts, I was telling Jared this earlier, that we didn't spoil it, but I thought it was fun, that the Fortune magazine writer was just like, and then... He's like speechless. He's like, he's yeah. like, what? What the fuck? Yeah, he starts, dro- yeah, he starts swearing. Kind of devastated. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was devastated. He was broken. Like. Yeah, that was my, that was to man. me the most dramatic point is that he, because yes. he was the person that really kind of like pushed her into the limelight, right, with the yeah. Fortune mm-hmm. magazine cover and everything like that. And so there's a sense of guilt. There's a sense that he felt swindled. Um, but mm-hmm. the fact that he was speechless and then all of a sudden he just starts swearing and you're like, yeah, because yeah. sometimes you can't say anything profound and you have to just say fuck. <laughs> I thought this is, Either I was that like, or maybe he's secretly invested. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, this is a man. I was like, this guy's like repressing his anger. I was like, this guy is like saying the most like horrible things, but so pleasantly. He's like, and that's why she's just a freaking fucking bitch. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, have some anger behind those words, man. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. I thought it was, uh, it, it didn't give me anything new, too much, Not nothing, I, would, I wouldn't watch it again, I guess is what I'd say. But I but yeah. I did enjoy watching it. I'm glad the story's out to more people. I think it's fascinating. And of course, in this thread of of entrepreneurs who are, who are bad people, this was a cool <laughs> one. Like this was an, yeah. yet another in the, in the canon, which I thought was cool. So mm-hmm. yeah. All right, Helen, what about you? I I mean, I'm not going to add to the diversity of opinions here. I was left wanting more. I watched it one and a half times because I fell asleep. I'm not going to lie. During toward the, toward the end, right after the CMS stuff, I fell asleep. And I just, I think it's like you said, you read the biography. You know, it gave, that gave you what you, you, there's this, we, there was just a lot left out. It was very cool to see Elizabeth, the, the scene where she's, Jumping in the bouncy house after they've had the... That was pretty mind-blowing to me. Yeah, just the fact that they had cameras on her. You know, just that there was so much footage of her where it was very clearly they're documenting her as this, you know, this goddess, this hero. And she's, you know, she loves it. She Mm. loves that light. And that was interesting to see. Yeah, especially with the timing. Like, like again, she just had this scathing article and she's going to Harvard. or she's Just all along. Just, you know, her just... She just absorbed all of that kind of celebrity CEO culture and but that was it you know it has it's like a great idea and this you know something that's going to change the world and that's something you know they're it's just very Silicon Valley going to change the world we're going to everybody's there with a crazy idea but there's nothing there's no depth to it the work 
And you you worshipped her, right? Like you used to love her. I realized. Well, I realized. I mean, you know, it's like I might be backtracking now a little bit. Like, yeah. But you said, I remember, like she was very impressed four or five months ago. You were like, oh yeah, she was. She was kind of a a hero. Yeah, I wanted to be. I think everybody who was kind of in, or probably not everybody, but I know for myself, I'm like, you know, God, that's something to aspire to. But then I realized, you know. Maybe if I'd heard her talk once or twice instead of just reading what the media said about her. The articles her, looked really impressive. The articles looked really impressive, and that's what the media does best, you know, is kind of takes those people and glorifies them. We see it over and over again. And she even spoke a little bit of truth in the course of the documentary, but we can we could get to that later. But I, yeah, I, it, like I said, it was cool to see her. It was but I was I was bored. I really was kind of frustrated that they didn't get the perspective of they. I think they had what one two physicians, one from Stanford, and then the other yeah. one was an ND. I, I didn't know who she, she was. A yeah, it's like a practicing doctor. Uh, it seemed like okay. Or, yeah. Or what is um, ND, she, Helen? Was it? I I actually don't know. Oh, um, ND I or looked it up. oh, I thought it was an MD. Well, it was ND, but I thought it I thought it might have been a typo over. But I, I didn't look her up, which was stupid. Um, I should do that in a second. But I can she, look that up. But yeah, no let's. Worries. No, I but it. They, I wanted more technical explanation as for what, why what she was doing couldn't work. Could it have worked if it had been bigger? Could it have worked, you know, if there had been less tests, if we'd taken longer to, you know, make something like this happen? I mean, what, but she was rushed because it's, you know, she, that she wanted to be the celebrity. That was what it, what I really took away yeah. from it. That's what, that was the whole point. And that speaks to something larger in our culture. But let's move on. Uh I actually quite liked it, so I am yeah. going to give the go. differing opinion. All I right. did not. I feel like I'm the ideal audience because yeah. I didn't know much about the mm-hmm. event. Jacob had told me a yeah, little bit. And got, I knew that yeah. it was a hoax, but I thought it was good. And the reason why I think it was good is I, I understand where you guys are coming from. Where you followed the whole thing, you know about the whole mythology, whereas I knew nothing. And I feel like I got enough. <laughs> I feel like I get something, but. This is a piece of entertainment. Gibney made a piece of entertainment, and I just kind of look at it through that lens, and he had to find an angle, and I liked his angle on the whole story, because the thing is already too long. It's already two hours. Yeah. He can, he's not going to make a four-hour no. version. Right. I mean, maybe well, he would with HBO. <laughs> Michael Jackson. Yeah, the Michael yeah. Jackson thing, but I liked his angle a lot. I mean, his angle is essentially that this woman sold people on a very appealing, albeit false, story a la her idol and the namesake of her product, Thomas Edison, and that we all frame our lives through stories. And I just think with all this discussion around how news media is communicated to us through narrative and how we consume reality as a narrative and all the ramifications of that, I think it was a pretty poignant angle to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did do a good job the, uh, of Edison, obviously, is the namesake of her product. She Edison is this hero of hers, just like Steve Jobs was. And then the whole film was sort of in that lens of, like, just like Edison as a magician, she was trying to do the same thing. And it right. kind of kept drawing that parallel yeah, that throughout the whole film. And, yeah, that I guess cool. the whole thing was, like, so how, do, how does she con all these supposedly smart, ultra-powerful people? Because... And I got to give a shout out to Mike Burns, who wrote our kayfabe video, because we're all marks for a world we want to believe in. Mm. And the Elizabeth Holmes story is too good not to believe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I want to go into a recap, and then I have some questions for, I guess, Jacob and Helen and Austin, whoever knows more about this than I do, because I guess to your point, there are a lot of things that I found confusing, most specifically the timeline. They say she started the company when she was 19, yeah. then say, I don't know, when she raised the first $400 million and then the second $400 million mm-hmm. and the Walgreens thing, and then she's all of a sudden 35. I don't really, <laughs> I don't really know how she's that like works. She's like Bill and Ted's, man. She's just traveling around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
Uh, all right, so recap. So 19-year-old wonderkin Elizabeth Holmes drops out of Stanford to create Theranos, a medical tech company that touts the ability to run the whole gamut of blood tests in a computer-sized box with only a single drop of blood. Problem is, this is impossible. But that doesn't stop the veritable army of wealthy and influential people captivated by her story and her personality from throwing money at her. Politicians, ex-military, and Silicon Valley's wealthiest investors line up to support her project. Many years, $900 million, and one failed partnership with Walgreens later, it becomes evident that Elizabeth's technology never worked. She had been lying, and she was constantly sprinting to achieve the impossible. The company's valuation goes from $9 billion to zero overnight, and Elizabeth and her COO, who she had been engaged in a romantic affair with, plead not guilty to charges of fraud and conspiracy. End of documentary. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did you get? The, did it mention the romantic relationship? It in did. The doc? Men, it did mention it. Not, 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 not in much detail. Yeah. Heyo. All Thank right, guys. You. I got a, a couple of questions. So, I guess mostly for Jacob or whoever knows the most about this. One thing I never could figure out was: is she actually a competent or extremely talented scientist, or was it just all bullshit? Helen might know more than I do. Well, but it she sounds only like she only went to bullshit. school for a year, and so I read yeah, a couple reports she... that said that she actually couldn't have the knowledge about uh, phlebotomy and various things like that that she claimed that uh, that that her product was going to be able to explore. So in a sense, there was an element where she was projecting more about her scientific or medical expertise than she actually was able to uh, realize. Yeah, and right at the beginning, I mean, they asked her, you know, do you consider yourself a scientist, a technologist, or an entrepreneur? And she's, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I mean, she studied engineering. I don't think she studied the biomedical sciences, um, which is, you know, not unimpressive at all. I'm not saying, but she wasn't a biologist. She was not a phlebotomist. But doesn't she um, have, didn't the documentary allude to the fact she has patents? Well, she was developing she, a patent, which yeah. which was physically impossible. Yeah. Which that doc, that yes. kind of that, that uh, Stanford professor is like, this is not possible. I'm not going to help you sign on this. This can't be done this way. Okay. And she refuses to listen. And did she get the patent done anyway? She had a, two patents to her name? I think she did. And a couple well, more later in the company. With other people, yeah. yeah. I, she definitely had that one. I'm actually, you know, I haven't looked into that and see, like, how did, how did she pull that I, off? I, I, I I think, I think there's a really simple way, Jared, to think about this. It's science fiction. That's literally what this mm. is. You know how science fiction is a few minutes into the future, devising ideas based on imaginative speculation. You know, you've got like uh, a machine that can materialize anything that you want. And so you can just snap your fingers and you've got food in Star Trek, right? It's something similar. She was five minutes into the future, uh, 15 minutes into the future. And so that's, I think, a way to think about this. Like, just because she didn't have the expertise doesn't mean that she didn't have enough knowledge. Like, I could right now go get a patent for some sort of, like, biotech uh, software or something like that. Well, that's that, like use the holodeck from Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah, because I have enough knowledge, like a cursory knowledge of 
science uh, in some various subfields where I could go and I could be like, oh, that's kind of cool and it's not on the market right now. I could go get a patent for something like that. In that yeah, sense, like, yeah. you can get a patent for something that doesn't actually exist yet. 100%. Yeah. Uh, that's the whole idea. It's like you're kind of just develop, you're, you're devising and patenting the, the, um, the flow, like the way that it will work, the the method of which in which it'll work, and this right. is an idea of like having a device that you would patch, it would monitor and dispense medication at the same time, which was physically impossible at that size. Like maybe mm-hmm. it's a nanotechnology of some kind, which sounds but, fantastic. Um, like it sounds, it sounds cool. Yeah. Sounds amazing. Did you guys? Do you know who Kevin Kelly is, the founder of Wired? Oh, that's. I, I now I know that yeah. he's the founder of Wired. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah. Wait, so he he, he wrote a book a couple of years ago, I think in 2016, called The Inevitable, and it's about these 12 trends in technology that he says are going to revolutionize the world. And one of the ones that he actually spends a little bit of time talking about, I don't know if it was based, I don't know if he mentions Theranos in the book, but he basically says that um, like pharmacists are going to become obsolete in the future because the whole process. It's going to be automated and streamlined into your room where you're just going to stick your finger in a machine. It's going to prick it and it's going to do a diagnostic check and it's going to tell you what you need in terms of like vitamins or whatever in that given day. And then it's going to make you the precise pill that is going to be good for you in that moment, right? So it's stuff like that that I think there's an, there's an act of uh, – it's not just sci-fi in the bad sense that it's like, oh, she's just crazy and fanciful. But it's speculation and I think I think in that sense that's how we kind of have to view – her patents and how she viewed herself as an entrepreneur. She was like a sure. a scientific speculator. Yeah, I've, I've got a friend now uh, who's got a girlfriend, and I said, "Where does what does she what does she do?" And he said, "Oh, she's working for a company that does like microdosed blood samples." And I'm like. Hmm. Oh, like Theranos? And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's like Theranos, but it's like the real one. This is right now. Since... This is, I know, but yeah. it's like kind of a, in a way, like a doomed joke of an industry it... right now. But, it, but it is possible, or it's headed in that direction, I'm sure. Well, you know, the uh-huh. Schultz grandson, like he couple... works for a diagnostics company now, a startup that's doing mm-hmm. something similar. Small amounts C- of blood. Tyler Schultz, you said, is Tyler? He, is yeah. He a C- yeah, she's a CEO or something. I think he may have founded it, didn't he? Maybe I th- not. I think um, yeah, it's some startup, and, and I know he's I know he's involved, and it's basically like Theranos, but more quote unquote realistic. So, and I mean, just to be clear, I feel like that you know her lack of she being she was was a visionary, I think for sure. I mean, and that just because she didn't have that background, she was able to make connections. It didn't preclude her from doing great things, you know. That she no. just. Clearly, it was an exciting opportunity for people. It's funny because to me, I I don't think of it as like that revolutionary, but I just don't – I guess I'm not really – I'm not in the world of of biomedical engineering and I'm not in that world of what a big industry quest diagnostics is and this whole world of blood testing. Right. So well, I mean, to me, it just sounds the, the like issue, well, it doesn't sound like that big a difference, but I guess it is it's huge. Obviously, it was well, enough to get people just so excited. Mm-hmm. Jacob, think about this: like instead of ever having to go to the doctor, you would just be able to go to. Eventually, you'd probably have one in your house, but you'd just be able, be able to go to the local drugstore, get a finger prick, and then get your own test results in an hour, and then yeah. you would be yeah. able to. I mean, it's basically the culmination of biopolitical management from a phlebotomy perspective. But it's like then you can have all your test results at that moment. So you know everything about what's going on in your body. And so they're viewing it not as sort of something that reacts to sick people, but something that's proactive, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this goes more to – and which what's my first talking point, something I already brought up with story. It's not only is the story of Elizabeth Holmes, this Wunderkind, woman in tech yeah. – who is rising the ranks and has this revolutionary idea, but 
she was able to tell the story of Theranos. And that is so important when it comes to investors or anything like that. You basically have to captivate them. It's not only the media. It's not only it, – it's literally how do I sell this vision? And this vision mm-hmm. is most is best sold using narrative. And they believed in her, her story, it, you know, almost more so than the story of what she was doing. Like they believed in her as a leader. Yeah, I love one of the parts in the documentary where there's this guy, I don't even know who it is, but – he says that her grandfather was an entrepreneur and her <laughs> uncle has a hospital oh, named after part of the movie yeah. <laughs> for being involved in medicine. So, bam, she must be legit. Oh, it's like yeah. that means yes. je- that means fuck all. But uh, yeah. the fact that, oh, no, I, the narrative fits. And, of course, God. it's always a much more palatable narrative when, oh, this great person is descendant from great blood yes. or something <laughs> oh, like that. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. too. It's kind of like the, the noble blood idea. Well, it's like if Very you're even so. in entertainment, if you are the son or, or daughter of someone who yeah, is royalty, in yeah. entertainment. It's just, it's a better narrative for you to also be talented. Yeah, totally. look at Jeff Bridges. Look at Michael Douglas. No, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, it's the nepotism. But no, the um, there was another part of the documentary that I thought was very clever. What I think it was right after that Fortune guy is kind of like breaking down and can't find his words. He's like, I just realized everything was a lie. And then it goes to all of those screens where she's like saying like, I'm afraid of needles. And I'm, yeah. you know, my <laughs> grandfather was a doctor or whatever. Well, she talks about my uncle I loved so much. Yes. I, I wanted, my question was, is there goes, an uncle? Yeah, yeah me that's, too. Exactly. I was wearing the same thing. <laughs> I was, well, it was kind of implied that it all went to black and white. It pulled up the screens. Everything was a lie. And then it made me think. Yeah, maybe she never had this <laughs> uncle that died. Yeah, exactly. So All I, of it was bullshit. I used to work for a large media company, and I was a, a producer in their production team, and we were responsible for making online content and viral videos and shit like that, right? That was what our job was. One of the companies that we ran was a tailoring company, and it was called, like, I don't remember even what the name was. It was something so fucking racist, but it was like Johnny Wong's Hong Kong Tailors. I'm not exaggerating. It was something like that, right? And... um. I remember I was at a conference one time and we were talking about this company and hundreds of people are coming up to us talking about this company and they're like, does Johnny Wong even exist? And behind me there was a picture of a Chinese man with a text that was like, Johnny Wong was my grandfather and he was a tailor that worked in Hong Kong for all these years and did blah, blah, blah. And it was this story. And they looked at me (laughs) and they said, is Johnny Wong even real? And then I'm not going to say the owner of the company's name, but I said, do you know the owner of the company? Insert name here. And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, tell me what you think. And they looked at me and they were like, okay, because this is a trade secret, man, that you tell stories, you create a myth in order to sell it. And it isn't something that somehow she's this outlier. Like, this is really common. Like, you exaggerate a little bit. You tell a little bit of your myth. You create your story. You create your narrative. And then that's what you're selling. It doesn't matter as long as you can reproduce. And that's the problem is that she couldn't reproduce the results or she couldn't produce profits. That's the issue. It's not that her speculation on the technology she was better. Produce the it's results. just that she couldn't, she couldn't fucking deliver in time. And then have, she lied about a it. Com- a comment coming in from K Monkey. He says, you guys mentioned nobility and entertainment, and you don't mention your boy Nick Cage. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so, yes, You mean touche. Nicholas Coppola? <laughs> Nicholas Coppola. Yeah, Nicholas Coppola, but... Thank God for that. Yeah, I mean, look, there are there might be hundreds of thousands of people in L.A. right now that are just... That are just as talented as Nick Cage, but they'll never get the chance because they're not a Coppola. I mean, it's certainly possible, but there are a lot of people. I mean, like Michael Douglas, still a great actor. Oh, he's awesome. Nicolas Cage, still a great actor. So, I mean, I'm not saying that it precludes you from being talented. Okay, so one other question. What what is the actual timeline? So she quit Stanford in 19, started Theranos, and then what did she do for the next X amount of years before she got her first investment? 
she raised her first amount of money like right away in the first year. Uh, she raised, I see, $6.9 million to get it started. They're developing stuff. And then they raised their next big round. So they raised that in 2004. Six years later, they're probably developing stuff. And they raise $45 million. Dollars. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> well, yeah. in the book, I remember they're mentioning that she's, I mean, effectively, they're just starting to, to figure out what this Edison machine is going to do, how it's going to work. They're they're spending a lot of time engineering these the little mechanics, the robotics of that thing to be able to like pick a sample, put it into the right hole. Um, what the those reacting agents? They're sort of like playing with that the machinery there, but none of it worked, and all of it was held very secret. And they would do these demonstrations, these sort of performative demonstrations, which they mentioned in the documentary, where they would take bring someone along, like an investor or the journalist along, put them into a room. Have them do the prick sample, put it into the machine, and they'd be like, well, the results are going to take a while, so why don't we just go for a little walk? And they would take them for a walk, and then they'd have these guys come in and run down and then run a real test on it. Yeah, they, they said that in the documentary. Yeah, yeah and sometimes it wouldn't even be a real test at all. They just they just wouldn't send a result at all to anybody. But I, 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 I don't know the detail of what they were building exactly. I mean, every, it could be everything from hiring a lot of people to do God knows what, to a security detail, to the little prick bottles and the little little capsules. They had to develop all of those little pieces. So they were, it was like a bullshit factory for a long time, I'm sure. And then I think that once the deal, like, I think once they announced the deal with Walgreens, that that was also and when a, was that like uh, let me see was, here yeah I'm looking here too how do you spell Walgreens I'm kidding <laughs> uh, so the partnership was in 2013 so this is about about uh, seven, six years later okay about nine years later actually I'm sorry nine years after they raised that first round of funding and they raised a second round in 2010 then in 2013 they announced this partnership and in the book it mentions that this partnership starts off that gives them a ton of traction to go raise a lot more money cuz now it's really legit yeah. and they start to have conversations with military for a military contract but all of that doesn't materialize they've sold a deal and they can't deliver on it on the military side they can't get FDA approval or the internal approval that they need and on the Walgreens side they can't produce results and they can't figure out what to do and that that the delay takes like 3 or 4 more years years before they opened that first store in Arizona. And by that point, I think that's really when the shit hits the fan is that they're starting to put this out to the market and do stuff, which is now at this point, what, 10 years later, or 13 years later, and it's all fake. And that's the part like, where it all starts to break down because the results are not actually real. Yeah, the I interesting get, thing um, is, though, is that they could have, like if they had just a long-term strategy where they weren't so pressured to push it to market to turn a profit... It's still a very interesting idea. Now, whether or not it's physically impossible ever or whether it's just impossible maybe in the next 5, 10, 15 years because we don't have the technology to be able to extract the appropriate information to analyze it, I don't know. But if you – like if you – like this is what science does all the time. Like um, I was just reading this uh, – about this, uh, this thing called a holometer where there's this physicist who's trying to basically disprove – all the findings of quantum theory and uh, the you know the the kind of dominant understandings of string theory at the moment but he doesn't know if it's going to work but nevertheless he's got this like long-term investment to be able to try to understand whether or not there is a small unit of space called quantum space now he may not eventually solve it he may not prove it but nevertheless he's got investment the problem is is that you can't do that when you have like $900 million of investment from private investors who want to see a return on their profit. So there's also a problem with the short-term demands to go to market here rather than just allowing somebody to kind of explore indefinitely. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear you. 
there's always the pressure of like short term returns and the near or short time short term short term returns in the near term, but uh, in this case it's pure fraud, right? In this case, like well, because she said it works. Yeah, she says it works. She says she has. They claim to have billions of dollars in revenue when in fact they'd only actually booked cash flow of a couple hundred thousand dollars. We're talking about mass fraud, yeah. similar to the fire festival side yeah. where. He had said, "We've got. I own millions of dollars of Facebook stock. And it was like forty five hundred dollars, uh, you know, things like that. So th- there were clear lies. I mean, throughout the whole piece, which is different. So you don't I think mean, investors come on board? But like, you don't well, think look, the, that she that she thought that she really could do this? Like, if like if someone came to her and they were like, her, here's a fifty year investment where I will fund you to to find the solution. You don't think that she actually cared about that? That she." Do you think that she literally from the outset was like, I'm going to defraud people so that I can make money? I think money. the documentary says this. Like early on, she probably thought that she could do it and could build this company. But as as the lies mounted, you start to have to believe those lies enough to keep – because you now – let's say you've raised $6 million and this is my vision for a company. And you hit physical limitations, you know, reality limitations at some point. And instead of saying, oh, it really was hard, the timing is just too soon, we can't get this done – and you close it down. Instead, you start to lie, mm. and then all of a sudden, you've gone from six point nine million to forty-five million in funding, to a hundred million in funding, to four hundred million in funding. And along the way, you're just lying more and more and more to keep afloat for too long. It falls apart. Like it's just you're just lying. Yeah, you're rationalizing it to where it would make sense to a normal person, but she's not. Like she still has an elevated level of psychosis going on. And she on. thinks yeah. that it's she, she thinks it's real. It's she says work. at the end, she's like, "Oh, I, I it does work. I I completely believe this." And what does that mean? It does work. Like it either works or it yeah, doesn't. No, exactly. If, if, she, if it did, she wouldn't be in. But I think whatever. the defense that you're saying is probably her defense. The defense that you're saying, Austin, which is, I thought it was going to work, and I thought it worked, and in my mind, it's working, and we we were on the right path. So That's she's gonna be her defense. She's, she's basically just, pleading insanity. Yeah, in a sense, right? It sounds like she's she's going to say, in my mind, reality was X. But the true reality was why, and they weren't the same thing. And it's not my fault that they're not. They don't. Is they don't... that a defense for fraud? I don't know. I don't think not you for can fraud, legally. But for her belief of it all, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no, it's not there's the same thing. There physic- there's like uh, the, there's like literal fraud, like the things like like bake, you know, uh, cooking the books and yeah. things that she did that I think are gonna she's gonna be guilty for. But the fraud th- or for the uh, whatever piece- lawyer does want to plead insanity. If she, he might. They probably will. What's yeah. the? What's the? What were the? The uh, it was on certain counts that she was that she had pled not guilty, which was is it conspiracy or I don't know. I can't remember exactly. The documentary uh, didn't she, specify. It was at the very end. I think it, it, it was two things. It was, two things. It it was, was fraud and conspiracy. And, yeah, right. So and, it's it's shocking that she's pleading not guilty. But I guess <laughs> you well, it's like Austin <laughs> and I mean, Sunny. She doesn't feel like she defrauded people. Like she feel you know believes in her idea. All of the other stuff was just buying more time. You know, the lying is. The ends justify the means in a way for right. her, right? Like, this is a noble thing. She does not feel like she... That's why I thought that experiment, the Dan Ariely experiment, when it's like the lie detector stops working as soon mm. as you think that it's noble. Yeah. Not that... Again, I, I, I think... Do you really think that she was in this because she was noble or she just convinced herself that this was a noble cause? Because to me, that know. seems like ultimately, doesn't she just want to be a billionaire and just want to be a rich... Famous uh, CEO. I don't know. Do you think or she really cared about people? Like, then if she did, why did she not care that her employee committed suicide? And why didn't she care yeah, that other that people was... got killed and other people got bullied and completely, you know, followed? And well, you know, human human, human motivations disgusting. are extremely complex, right? Like, yes. th- there's a tendency when we abstract away from the complexity of the human to turn them into a singular entity. Like, 
she is a monster. And that's what Gibney does in this film in some ways. I read an interview with yeah. him where he said that he spent a lot of time on the beat that he calls it of the fraudsters. So he's got his documentary on Scientology. He's got the one on Enron and then he's got the one on Lance Armstrong, right? And he's clearly trying to make this like the fourth in that lineage that she too is a fraudster. And mm. I think that when you reduce somebody down to the simple, abstract, accessible, digestible soundbite of Elizabeth Holmes fraud, I, I think that that kind of reduces the complexity of things. And I think you're absolutely mm. right, Jacob, that, that, that towards the end at least, she is a bullshitter. At that point, she's selling snake oil. The machine doesn't work. She's lying in order to buy herself more time. And maybe she still is using that Edison idea, you know, where he delayed uh, four years so that he could figure out how to solve the filament problem. Maybe that there's an element that, or maybe she just is a fucking liar and she's a habitual liar and lies became her. Once you start with one, then it becomes easy for two. And then you're already kind of just engaged in just half truths, partial truths, and you have to just kind of continue that. But it's not that like she's sitting there with a master plan where her and Sonny are in the background are like, how are we going to manipulate people today? It's more like I've got to just say what I've got to get so I can tell the person what they want to hear so they will get off my back. And then and then I got to figure shit out. But I do think that that doesn't negate that she really did think that this product could be revolutionary and transformative in preventative medicine. You know, I, I did. Say, I will say, like, I, I feel a lot more I, I I feel disgusted by her in the documentary, whereas in the book, I felt much more like compassionate. I felt much more. I felt sorry for her in the book, which is like, wow. Yeah, she was in deep and she like she fucked it up and she must be like, she's <laughs> to just say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Screwed. Helen, 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 I got a question. So and I don't want to I don't want to just go straight down the uh, like, I don't want this to be patronizing gender politics here. But seriously, as a woman, when she was announced as like the youngest female self-made billionaire, what effect did that have on like the science community and the science literature? Because I don't read like science journals and science blogs and stuff like that nearly as much as you did. Was she just like was this the future, especially in the contemporary moment where, where, where we, we are so attuned to female voices? This had to have been just transformative. I actually don't know. I was I I don't know how the community at large kind of, you know, viewed her. It seemed like there was a lot of skepticism based on what I'm reading from physicians and I've talked to at least one who has said, "Yeah, if you're a doctor, you knew this wasn't going to fucking work because really? it's just too complicated. It's right. too complicated for the size of the box." I what which engineer was it who was saying, you know, they're trying to to kind of they're trying to manipulate physics in ways that are just not possible. And and that was kind of what I had was, you know, heard too from from so talking So is it to just the size of the box or also the amount of blood? Like I mean, could could, um, could you use a regular commercially available blood tester? I think tester. it was probably, it was, I don't know. I, I don't think so. It was the amounts, because the technology. In the book, it was the amounts of blood that were just too yeah. small. Like you just need a lot more, you need a larger sample to get more accurate results. Yeah. You, especially when you start to mix them with agents and all that kind of thing. So I'm sure it was on, on multiple levels. You know, there was like clearly some problems with this that people who, you know, were, were really in the, you know, uh, kind of on the ground in the field saw that, you know, the general news media that kind of, you know, we love to celebrate young entrepreneurs, we glorify them, right? Mm. And that that she she had a compelling story, especially as a woman, I think. Mm. Um, 
you know, so I mean, I was like, I was inspired by her youngest female, but you know, it's, mm. it's aspirational, right? But like, if, it was the kind of thing, like, if, if you raised your hand to say, hey, we have a physical problem here, it's like, yep, you're yeah, fired, yeah, yeah. and uh, we're going to have a lawyer exactly. follow you Maybe until you kill you're, yourself. You know, you're not cut out to be in Silicon Valley, oh, you know, that uh, crazy uh. shit. <laughs> yeah, like, oh my well, like, God. I thought that was really good. Was it Tyler or, or the, the. It was one of the, the kid, engineers. The, 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 the guy with the grandson. He's, when he's like, I would have a problem and I'd be downstairs in the basement. And things weren't oh, working. Right. And it was like a disaster. Yeah. Then I go upstairs and I would be like, "Wow, I'm inspired again." I go back down and I was like, "Wait, what just happened?" <laughs> that was so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. and it was the carpet. The carpet the inside carpet of the building the tile. was where everything was yes. great. But then in the tile, I loved that spatialization of everything. That was Same. really nice. I liked that a lot. Yeah, yeah. he had a. He was really. Um, it was really cool to hear. Well, I read a lot of things. So, like in the book, and then in the podcast, and then any of the like ABC series and stuff like that. He doesn't really talk about any sort of reconciliation between him and his his grandson. Or, I'm sorry, between him and his grandfather, who was the former Secretary of State, right? Um, but a lot of people mm-hmm. on Twitter, I guess, were very happy that this film showed that they do reconcile. So for people out there, there's a reconciliation mm-hmm. between grandson and grandpa, which is yeah. kind of nice. Yeah, that's, that is nice to hear. Yeah, because in the book, it like, goes on for a while. And he's like, no, you're not listening to me. She's a good person. You're an idiot. Yeah. Aww. So related to that and related to the question that Austin just asked Helen, I got to ask, it, was so much of this just like a bunch of old ass dudes just being horn dogs? <laughs> I was going to ask. I'm glad you asked that. Good, that was going to be my next question. question. Is that, that that's uh, yeah. another element, too. And Bill like, she's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, I do is it, like God, this I... lady. Or like and an element of well, that. And then, and then the flip side. They're so but, bewitched, right? Yeah, yeah, but I I don't know. I didn't pick. Th- First, I didn't personally pick them because she just seemed so. She didn't seem like a, you know, kind of this sex kitten kind of thing. She wasn't like, look at this. But but when you're 96 years old. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I'm not a 96-year-old man. I cannot speak to the sexual aspirations of these Be people. Be empathetic. But, like, I, I don't know. I, I'm just saying, if somebody comes to you and it seems like, and they're pitching you as the next Thomas Edison, and they're attractive, and you're a 96-year-old dude. And they're female. It definitely, yeah. the story would have been very different had she been unattractive, or I think had she not been white. And also been, you know, not like she came from pedigree. She used, she spent her education trust. It on matters this stuff. that she looks good on the cover of a magazine. It makes, oh yeah, this would have been totally fucking different. I think, if it oh, yeah. in my opinion. But I mean, you know, I don't know if if the, if the motivations there were uh, definitely not the I, motivations I, I I weren't th- sexual. But did it make it easier to be like, yeah, I'm gonna back this? Or I'm not like, suggesting yeah, there was it, actually any no. hanky panky. I'm no. just saying <laughs> no, there that, was. Not, that no, like, no, you know, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, I All mean, right. I love Henry Kissinger saying like those board meetings were a human rights violation. <laughs> <laughs> they were too long. Yeah. I mean, okay. I do think, gonna... though, Jared, though, I think that's a really important component to this that isn't getting as much attention. That there are a couple ways to look at this. I think one is is she being portrayed as like this temptress, which women have been portrayed as a temptress for centuries, millennia, right? I mean. The fucking uh, Lilith is the first woman created by God who is then turned into a demon because she wouldn't be submissive to Adam. And then in some sort of uh, reading of interpretations from Jewish scholarship, it's because she wanted to be on top, right? So if you're a dominant woman, you are sometimes viewed as somehow being you're violating the natural order or something along those lines. Like that has been a part of human mythology and storytelling for millennia. So there's a sense in which I think you can see that in this, that she's kind of being portrayed as this temptress, this powerful, 
I don't, it's not that she's asexual. It's almost like she's, her sexual libidinal energy is off the table because she dresses uh, in the black turtlenecks and all black. And so it's kind of like not form, quote unquote, flattering, I guess we would say. But nevertheless, but she's got it's that the sexiest voice in Silicon Valley. <laughs> well, yeah, but she's got the doe eyes and she doesn't blink. And she's got blonde hair, which she wasn't a natural blonde. It like. There are photos of her where her hair gets darker. And so it's almost think, like uh, there is this repressed sexuality or libidinal desire that is something that's an important component to consider in this. Everyone's very excited reading. by your vocabulary, Austin, in the chat room. Foul temptress. And, wow. What, what, what words? I, libidinal. Yeah. Everyone's very that's, impressed. That's, that is amazing. But... Uh, all right. Real quick, I got to get a little meta for a second. Because one of my favorite parts of the documentary, so we already talked about how she's selling this narrative. She's aspiring to her favorite narrative of um, of Thomas Edison. One part I really like is when she talks about, and uh, Alex Gibney does this really beautiful illustration where she talks about how she got into Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, okay, now this is like art inspire art reflecting the narrative that is a built narrative. Because... Moby Dick, Ahab, like her, was a monomaniac. He had a single goal that was seemingly impossible, and he failed. And uh, I don't know. I just thought that was pretty uh, – That's that made me geek out pretty hard. But anyway, I want to move on to the next point. And that is when I was watching this, I was with my friend, and I'm about to press play, and he says, okay, before you do that, why are we watching this? Mm. Why – you know, you watching this is only going to draw more attention to these horrible people – and he ha- he made me before I press play ask like why are we watching this this you know we're you're only going to contribute more to this industry that worships these people who are doing clearly very bad unethical things and he kind of made me admit that I think that her as well as Billy McFarland on some level are rock stars mm-hmm. what do you guys think about that totally They're yeah totally... and I mean th- this was. Someone brought up in the comments earlier. It, HBO also did the uh, the um, Bernie Madoff piece yes. too. Like you've got all of these fraudsters, and at that level and scale, when you really don't give a shit if these investors, if you don't give a shit that, that Rupert Murdoch lost one hundred and twenty five million dollars, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Although there is a heroic story of his, I'll tell him a second from the book. But you don't give a shit if he loses oh, one hundred twenty five yeah. million dollars, or the Waltons lose one hundred million dollars, or Betsy f- DeVos loses one hundred twenty million dollars. The only people you feel bad for are the people who got fucked over at Walgreens. Yeah, exactly. The and people the, the and the employees and yeah. and you know people who believe in the vision, whatever. But like, I meant so, the patients. Yeah, yeah, yeah the patients. And the Bond. But yeah, go ahead. But right, but right. Uh, <laughs> I think. So you don't care about that part so much. So you, so the story is heroic in the fact that wow, you were able to swindle the best of the best. It's kind of like uh, Wolf of Wall Street in some ways. I mean, although that's more like the penny stock side, but you're just you're celebrating their ability to get it done. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, we we they are rock stars in that regard. And because we don't care about who they affected in some ways, except not the employees that killed themselves. So, you know, again, for the people who got swindled here, we're talking about major investors who are going to be fine. I think that's why we kind of are okay with their rock star status. But that's my perspective. Can I can I teach can I do a little economics for a second here? And I'll try to make it interesting. So there there are a few economic figures that I think we should consider right now. One is a guy named Joseph Schumpeter, who is really known for this notion of creative destruction. But one of the things he talks about is what drives business cycles is the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur's vision for innovation and for creativity. 
right? So he develops this notion of business cycles uh, derived from this Russian economist named Kondratiev who has these things called K-waves, which are these long business cycles of ups and downs. And what is it that ultimately drives those things? All kinds of different people have different theories. You know, there's like the Marxist theory of history that's about class struggle. Uh, but for Schumpeter, it's entrepreneurs. So then Keynes is another figure I'd want to bring into this. I'm going to, I'm going to synthesize a couple things here. Keynes says that money is the link between the present and the future, right? Keynes is probably the most famous economist from the 20th century for people that are listening that aren't as familiar. But there's this idea then also that needs to be attached to this that credit as a form of money is using the future in the present. So I think if we bring together Schumpeter and Keynes and then this notion of credit with regard to speculation, what that gives us, that gives us insight into why it is that we love entrepreneurs so much today. Because entrepreneurs are the ones who have power over the credit to make the future possible. They bring the future into the present. And if people are interested in where this idea comes from, there's a woman named Elena Esposito, who's a sociologist in finance who writes a lot about the future and how it is that what speculation does is it tries to bring the future into the present and how that's different in U.S. finance than in European finance and in traditional theories of finance. And that right now the U.S. model of finance dominates because instead of trying to use the present to prepare for the future, what dominates us is that we're actually trying to use the future as our speculative image that transforms our present. And that's what this woman was able to do. That's what Billy McFarland was supposedly able to do. It's create an image of the future, create your future, and you as this person that is looking at Instagram models that wants that thing that you don't quite have attained yet. And you use that to transform or to regulate what it is that you do in the present. And I think that's why we fetishize these people so much is because they are the gatekeepers. They are the pinnacle. They are the ones who have control over the future. And I think that's something and, and, that but really helps no, us explain but, why we love these people so much. Sure. But when there's no substance there, that's the danger, right? Like Steve Jobs brings us into that level of the future that we have, that AT&T dreamed of 20, 30, 40 years ago. And all of a sudden, wow, we're in this place where we have mobile phones and we can do our work wherever we are at the beach, et cetera. And he delivered on that promise. Or uh, Elon Musk, you know, there's a future where cars cannot have any emissions. And wow, he delivers on that promise. And mm. so, yeah, money becomes that that link through investment, but that link of like the future, dreaming that up and making it happen and making it a reality. And what we're observing instead, similar to like true crime, where we're observing just people doing bad things and it's sort of, it's exciting and, and very interesting to investigate. We're seeing that happening in the business front where just like you can defraud someone or you can swindle someone on one end, you can do that in the business realm with this very buttoned up, very white collar appearance and you can do it with the best of the best and the most sophisticated people and that's where i think it becomes fascinating to say oh even at that level there's this this incredible level of sophisticated deceit and that's an interesting thing to observe yeah now jacob you're you're an entrepreneur so like yeah i feel like this in many ways probably offends you because in a way you're kind of no. impressed that somebody was able to to kind of control the market in that way. But is there a, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that it offends you because I know that you're a, a moral human who has like, good intentions. What That's why Wisecrack about? exists. Because <laughs> you and Jared wanted what? to change people for the good. Um, yeah, we wanted to change the world. <laughs> because but we really, want to change the world. Like, and are wisecrack. you offended by this idea of like speculation on the future and controlling the future, but without substance? Does that like disappoint you? Or like, what do you think about that? I think it would have offended a, uh, a younger version of myself. So we do have to remember that Elizabeth Holmes was 19. Um, and you are so... Think about like, Austin, you're also a film lover. Jared, you're a filmmaker. When you're young, you 
can observe another filmmaker and you become very emulative and you say, okay, they seem to be, you know, I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson. They seem to be using the camera in this way. It's constantly moving. It's constantly changing. And I'm going to, I'm going to emulate that performance and I'm going to direct a film in that way, or I'm going to make a movie like that. That's the definition of what a good movie is. And you see her falling into the same trap with Steve Jobs. So by that, I just mean as a younger person, even myself as a younger entrepreneur, I would say, I'd buy into the bullshit. I'd say, no, you have to have this vision and this confidence because entrepreneurs are the ones who really do change the world and they do move the world forward. And they're, one, they're ones who do take the risk. And um, part of me definitely still believes that. I definitely do think that entrepreneurship and enterprise allows these sorts of things to happen. But I will say that Wisecrack has changed me. I don't know if for the better, but Jared <laughs> has gotten under my skin in a, in a way, uh, good or bad. But it's allowed me to also be a little more level-headed, I think, about things like this where I'm not uh, offended because it's not um, – I think I've allowed my own definition of my identity and definitions of what I believe be more fluid. I'm more open to seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly, and that includes mm. entrepreneurship or anything else. Like you can see the same kind of thing even for people who work only in nonprofits and only help people and are social workers. There can be a dirty and dark side to that too. And I think look at yeah, invisible children. What happened with you're them? looking at a? I'm just I'm just selling here. You're looking at a transformed man because of Wisecrack. <laughs> exactly. I am a transformed yeah. person. It's not, it's not Are the you trying to pill. sell your book? It's not the black Jacob. pill. Not the blue pill. It's the yellow pill. It's the my life is ruined pill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're seeing a changed, sad, sad man. No, I, I so I I um I was actually reflecting on that a little bit, thinking like, is this is this challenging my 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 very identity and my grit and uh. It didn't. It didn't so much. And I think, again, it's, it, I'm seeing myself change over time where I'm a little more cynical and a little more skeptical of entrepreneurship, where so much can be used as a marketing ploy. And the more we kind of unfold that, I think it um, it just doesn't become as personally offensive to me anymore. And and I think, yeah, entrepreneurship, is it's got to be investigated and looked at in the same way. Like, is this bullshit we're talking about? You need optimism. You need that. I think even even the uh, uh, Dan Ariely mentions this. Like you need that optimism. You need someone to th to be kind of crazy to take that leap of faith and believe. But at the same time, when you get into fraud territory, it, it that comes down to the actions and what you know. What is this entrepreneur really doing? So, in my desperate attempt to think of some justification for why I'm about to watch this and to get the movie starting because it's two hours and I got to go to bed, I kind of said, and I'm curious what you guys think about this. That stories like hers and Billy McFarlane's function as some kind of cultural whistleblowers. Because stories that are so absolutely nuts that they point out glaring issues with our society, like the cult of Silicon Valley, our ability to get blinded by a good narrative, the media's ability to be easily manipulated, the vacuousness of business speak, and everyone loves to see a train crash into the mountain. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. I do think that there is kind of a productive element to people like this. I mean, without the Firefest and without this, there would be perhaps less skepticism towards Silicon Valley. And I think, and that's what I want to talk about next, is just Silicon Valley and how this, as well as other things that are happening, are creating, I think, a pretty uh, pretty distinctly critic critical uh, disposition on them. No, but I think that's a very smart point. Like, in a way, this is uh, we, Jared and I. We, t we talk about like media, media savvy, like having a media literacy, being able to like in, to 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 read the news and understand if this is real or fake, or what's the, what's the what's the perspective or what's the source. In a way, these documentaries are highlighting like the bullshit and how to be literate about business in a way, or literate about like this whole world of like we're killing it and we're crushing it and we're changing the world. We're doing this. And, where all of that is is yeah. you know, and I think it's also entertaining speak. for her especially. 
Although this certainly <laughs> wasn't her intention, but you could definitely consume it as some kind of really bizarre performance art. Because that's what she was doing. She yeah. was pretending no. to be a genius. And she was just <laughs> surfing that narrative. Wow. You know, just... <laughs> everyone I just in tweeted, this shirt I just is... tweeted about this, and I'm being hyperbolic, but I said, you know, everyone is like, oh, Elizabeth Holmes' voice is so stupid. And then everyone is also like, oh, she's wearing those turtlenecks. What a phony. That's just ripping off Steve Jobs. And then I'm like, but also everyone was like, ooh, quick, take a picture of me driving this Maserati so I can put it on Instagram and pretend that it's mine. <laughs> Like, right. I think it's so right. easy for us to talk shit about Elizabeth Holmes and her performative elements. But at the same time, all she is really, in a way, is kind of a symptom of a larger structural tendency. Oh. And that's what and I'm more. A reflection yeah. of the stories that we want for to be sure. real. For yeah. sure. Absolutely. I mean, we create these people, I think, by worshiping them. Mm -hmm. And worshiping them without justification without asking how the fuck does the thing work let me see the inside <laughs> of it before i give you 500 million fucking dollars like that we we don't ask million. you know <laughs> or i don't know yeah exactly 900 like whatever like it's just insane it's like but it's not it's it also i think makes sense that's it's aspirational right and the media again it's, it's i keep saying this but it's this celebrity ceo culture People, you know, you talk to kids, they want to be Elon Musk. They want to be Steve Jobs. Nobody's going to want to be Elizabeth Holmes now, and that's a good thing. But you need to understand that, like, you know... Oh, you don't want to get caught. This whole These joke... things take hard work. This whole joke is on Silicon Valley. One of my yeah. favorite parts of <laughs> the documentary is the fact that as soon as it, bam, hits to the credits, it's back to MC Hammer. Don't, 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 don't. And yeah. the scene where they have MC mm. Hammer, where she's... Uh, very awkwardly kind Dancing. of strutting Yo, up. Oh, Jesus, it's the lame. It's, so the, it's the lamest fucking yeah. thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Oh my god! Uh, she's strutting up to the top about her fake FDA approval while MC Hammer is playing. So lame, and that's why I think that using MC Hammer in the credits was a great kind of rim <laughs> shot. Mm. It was a great, you know, that, rim job. Yeah, Silicon what? Valley. Not only, I said rim shot. Oh, <laughs> a rim I, job? I, at least I at least what I, at least I hope that's job? what I said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, what was once like, wow, all these people in this room are making so much money. Look how positive they are now. It's just like, look at these fucking suckers. Yeah. Clowns. Clowns. Yeah. Clowns. Can I, can I provide a foil to this? Because here's the thing. Yeah. I think that's what the documentary wants us to feel at the surface level. But really, this doesn't do anything to stop or impede Silicon Valley's cash flow. It doesn't stop or impede the expansion of platforms. It doesn't in any way uh, really indict the system of financial speculation that currently is dominating our, our economic system. I think that this is just a way for us to feel good about ourselves and our moral puritanical campaign against things that make us feel bad, but that doesn't really have any material effects. Now, I know that's I kind mean, of cynical. something. But I mean, if you're a billionaire investor and you see this documentary and then someone comes to you and says, hey, I've got this technology, you might be inspired to at least look at the details. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but you know what? Then, But how many – so this is like a centralized case of one company that was trying to do this. How many hundreds of different companies now are going to be capitalizing on diagnostic uh, sort of proactive – biomedical technology over the next 10 years and are going to make 20 times the amount of money that this company was valued for that are going to generate tens of billions so i don't think it actually does much other than kind of make us feel good about ourselves that we policed one girl who well, spoke problem, in a low voice the problem isn't people creating technology that 
that enables people to be more preventative about their health care. I mean, that's a positive vision. Yeah. The problem is, is Silicon Valley having this cult-like persona where you – or cult-like ideas where you put the goalposts so far away and then say, I have no idea how we're going to get there, but we're literally just going to make up numbers in our business plan, sell investors on it, and just try. And if anyone questions it along the way – then they're just not a Silicon Valley kind of person. Or if they're, don't they're, they don't, believe, yeah. in, they don't right. believe in the vision. It's the anyone questioning it along the way. It's that that culture create, like allows people like Elizabeth Holmes to thrive for as long as they did and allows them to you know live in mansions alone that their parents ended up decorating or something. is a different story. But yeah, like just, I don't, yeah, I, I agree with Jared. I don't think that, you know, the problem is innovation or money going into innovation. It's that the the these figures themselves that Silicon Valley creates. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'm just getting... curious or skeptical about whether or not this is actually going to change that tendency. I think that Silicon Valley no, is still going to operate No, it's not a revolution. It it's just a documentary, just one little blip in a general cultural shift that may or may not be happening. But between I mean, I hope this you're and right. Fire Festival, I, hope you're right. I, think you're, I think you're getting more skepticism of this whole moment, of, of uh, this, this blind faith I think that's being challenged in these documentaries. It's, become, it's coming more front and center now, and that's happening for Bernie Madoff and those kinds of pyramid schemes, but also now for entrepreneurship. I think uh, Claire mentioned on the Fire Festival doc, it was great, kind of this mention of like there's this worship of celebrities, of, of, of entrepreneurs, and what is this new class of kind of evil entrepreneurs? What would you call them? Like they're sort of the, the protagonist entrepreneurs, but it is giving you a new perspective. And I think it's going to happen if that if that hits and affects the investment community, that's going to hit and affect who's getting supported, who's getting funded, and what companies are being made. But mm -hmm. I think to Jared's point, like if if the technology ultimately lands, even if it makes more money than Theranos, that's a good thing. If it if it's actually working, yeah. I hope you're All right. right. I hope everyone's you're also right. saying, by the way, preach Jared, Jared twenty twenty. Jared should do a TED talk. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely not running think, for president. There's too much dirt. Yeah. <laughs> I think the T-shirt is helping. Like, yeah, it's um, getting you in the mood for the or in the uh, in the look for the TED talk. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead into the mailbag. If you want to give us a call at our voicemail service, it's two one three five three four eight eight zero seven or two one elf gut or elf hut oh seven. All right, so we got Maddie with a question about the fire festival. Go, Maddie. Hi, Westpac. This is Maddie from West Virginia calling about your Netflix uh, fire festival episode on Show Me the Meaning. Uh, something really interesting that occurs on Instagram with people my age, you know, I'm about 20, and especially with people younger than me that are still in high school, is that uh, they have what are called, like, their quote-unquote real Instagram, and then their quote-unquote fake Instagram. So on the real Instagram, they post, like, you know, normal pictures that you'd expect to find on Instagram, living my best life, you know, that kind of stuff. And then on their fake Instagram, or they're called uh, Finstas, they post pictures of, like, really ugly selfies or, like, quote-unquote behind-the-scenes pictures of them from their normal Instagram. And for captions for these, they have things like, I'm so depressed, you know, I hate so-and-so. And I thought it was really interesting because it plays into the whole thing you guys were talking about in the Fire Festival documentary where everything on Instagram is so fake. But I think it's interesting that they call these Finstas, which are fake Instagrams, they're that they're fake, but they contain more of their real thoughts. Mm. So uh, I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. Love the podcast, uh, and thanks. Thank you for calling. Yeah, that's Thank cool. you for calling, Maddie. 
That is pretty interesting. The fake Instagram <laughs> is the is the more real you. I had never heard of this. I really? I hadn't either. Yeah. So t- you so heard of Finsta? It's interesting. Wait. So the so the fake Instagram account is where you post like the ugly pictures and things like like things that are not meant to be like flexing. It's I guess more something. I don't know. Why don't <laughs> you explain? Private, I'm, I'm looking at Tim out there. Maybe like he can more, explain. <laughs> more intimate, more private. I guess where you kind of you know you've got your public persona and you've got your private persona mm. that only the people who are close to you can see. And and, and the finsta is the fake insta is the one that's more private. Yeah. Okay. Well, fake. Right. Exactly. It's the it's the yeah the, the alias if you will. So the more intimate version. Yeah, I mean... So that'd be like my Instagram, which is just pictures of dogs, is the Finsta, that's your and Finsta. I don't even have a real Insta. Yeah. No. The, the funny yeah. thing yeah. is... I think Wisecrack is your real Insta. <laughs> the funny thing like, is, is that there's kind of an admission then, in a weird way, in a roundabout way, that the quote-unquote real Insta is actually just like a facade, right? That Yeah. yeah. Well, I and, loved what Claire said in the last one about... Go. Oh, sorry, I interrupted you, but no, no, there's yeah. a lot of pressure there to have that real per- public persona. That's why I hate Instagram. Like, I don't want to post, I don't want to put myself out there. It's like, there's so much pressure to do that right and the kind of having that private in you know that private little kind of space where you can be yourself is is very comforting in a world where you have all of that kind of pressure i think but but go mm. ahead what were you saying Austin? no i was just going mean, to uh, jared's boy zizek uh has previously dealt oh, into what your boy. <laughs> uh, to what ideology is is ideology used to be understood as you know you don't know what you're doing but you're doing it anyway you know that that's kind of what demonstrates what ideology is that we're kind of just unaware it's the unknown uh, unknown unknowns i guess or unknown knowns um but now he says that actually ideology is we know exactly what we're doing and we know it's bullshit but we do it anyway it's cognitive dissonance right mm. and that's kind of it like you know that instagram is bullshit you know that the image that you're portraying is a facade but you do it anyway and it's kind of strange it's kayfabe but it's a consciousness uh that's attached to it it's really interesting mm. really yeah interesting. And it's it's tied so much in being. I mean, like it's what a perfect documentary here and fire, of course, to think about. I mean, we've talked about this in our video, but to think about how you're performing and these are our heroes. And again, there's there's no substance behind the veil. There's not a lot of substance back there. And so um, mm-hmm. when we look at someone like Elizabeth Holmes and and Billy McFarland and these people, I mean, she is. There's only yeah. the Instagram. I was self. about to yeah, say, right. do these people have finstas? What are they like? It, do, I, it doesn't sound like she's got one. She, no. Tell me something. No. Tell me a secret about yourself. There's nothing there. <laughs> I don't have any secrets. Wow. We actually have an email, a pretty similar question. This is from. This is from. Actually, I'm going to screw up the name. Isaias. He says, recently a popular trend called hashtag trash tag has gotten social media users out in their communities cleaning litter, then posting about it online. And I was curious to see if the Wisecrack folks thought this was also problematic. People are doing great things, but is the act of posting the pic more important than helping the environment? Or does it not matter? This is like the whole, hmm. like, ta- you know, filming and videotaping the concert, like you mentioned, as a, to looking through your phone as opposed to watching the actual experience. I don't find it problematic, though. I mean, it depends on what it's for. I mean, um, I don't know. If you're I mean, going, yeah, if you're going to whatever, a volunteer, and you're only doing it to have that social media post, then you're probably not going to do it again. Yeah, if it's only for that, sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, celebrities have done this forever, right? Like, it always was good PR, you know, go help the kids in the third world country. I mean, this is kind of. 
the the natural extension yeah. of, of that culture being coming so accessible to us, right? Like through yeah. social media. I'm not going to say mean, that it's bad that they're going to pick up trash, yeah. even if they were compelled to do it by Instagram. But I would say I would prefer they do it and not post it because... Yeah. Or post it, but keep doing it. I mean, I don't know. I don't Whatever. care. If you, I don't, like, for me, I don't care if you post it. doesn't it, matter. But it, as, as I mean, well, yeah, the thing that matters. I mean... Actually... I don't know. I th- I think about this a lot. Like one of my favorite subjects in neuroscience is, is the idea of mirror neurons, right? Is the idea of mirroring somebody and kind of and taking their behavior and you know kind of performing it yourself, right? And and I don't know. You know, maybe seeing if it inspires more people to do that because of that kind of idea. That kind of I mean, it's not exact, right? You can't completely apply that to this, but just the the act of seeing someone else do that and you know behave that way and and give a shit. You know, maybe that overall kind of justifies the act in in some sense. Does it have those kinds of reverberations? I don't well, that's know. That's the idea. I mean, it's like the ALS ice bucket challenge. I think it's trying yeah. to motivate more action. Yeah, but what it's happens? What happens when people just go out to the side of the road, pick up one can, take a picture, throw the can back down on the road, and then drive home? <laughs> that I don't is know so they, cynical. Do they do that? Do they throw like, it back on the ground? Well, what do you mean? Do they do that? I mean, if their goal is just to get an image, mm. then why wouldn't they do that? Yeah, but maybe they're taking it to the trash can now. Maybe God, Fine. If, one, if can, one can, one sure. can, oh, yeah, fuck. one more can. <laughs> I mean, I, I think like, I think uh, a lot of this. I mean, this goes back really? to the age-old question of of uh, like the ethical questions, right? Like, if you get some sort of return on the activity that you've done, like you tell somebody, "Oh, I gave a million dollars to somebody," does that contaminate the good of the act? Because did you somehow only do it so that you would be noticed for being noble or being generous or something like that, right? And then there's different theories like in deontological ethics. It's just more about, no, you do it because it's your duty to do it, Mm -hmm. right? You're not trying to get some sort of return on your reward. I think that a lot of this has to do with kind of coming out of of the tendency that you're talking about with like picking up trash and then kind of tweeting it. It comes out of the Protestant work ethic that is this idea that by doing the good act or by working hard – you can somehow demonstrate that you are the good person and that and that there is an effort to like seek some sort of reward on that the question is and i can't answer this now but at least i want to frame it is is does that contaminate the good or is it like helen just said what happens if it spreads though and that the consequentialist argument in ethics would be it doesn't fucking matter as long as the trash gets cleaned up right mm-hmm. as long as the trash is getting cleaned up who cares about your own personal piety and your like moral kind of purity in the act who gives a fuck as long as the trash is being cleaned up and we're no longer contaminating our environment so those would be kind of just different ways of thinking through this i have my own opinions on it but i just i don't know like right now at this stage of my life i'm kind of more like who gives a fuck as long as the shit gets done you know but maybe that's not entirely right the idea of somebody picking up the can and doing it for the gram and putting it back down. Well, how is that any tree. different than just driving to Joshua Tree, getting an image of you like you're hiking, and then just going home, which happens all the time? Uh, well, well I mean, the difference is, are you creating some sort of social good in the activity? Well, all I'm saying is that you, there's a simulation of an event happening here. You're not actually picking up the can. You're not actually climbing the mountain because that's not what you came to do. Perhaps, I perhaps, yeah. That's the thing. Is like I don't know. Is that uh, you? Probably you guys know more about this than I do. I, I know is that really. I'm happening? guessing. Yeah, but is that is that really happening? Is it purely performative? Uh, first of all, who gives? Like what? What? It, this is like the movie, the favorite. Like what game are we playing? Like does it matter that you went on the hike or not? Like is that going to create more more global good? Okay, well here's a, here's an example. Now I'm kind of ruining this whole thing by bringing this up, but Wisecrack went to the LA Food Bank 
and we did um, volunteer work, but we didn't post about it no. on Instagram. Why not? You you run the Instagram. Why didn't you? Yeah, I just figured like it was for us. I mean, I thought like it was mm. a good for me. It exactly. Was like, it was. It was in a sense. It was uh, now. I'm ruining the whole thing by no, no, talking no. about it now. No, no, but... no. But it felt good for the. It felt good to do something good, and we also yeah. had team building. We got to hang out and do something good together. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. It was I very mean, fun. Yeah, it feels now, gross, but trash yeah. tag was a trend. It was a whole diff. That was different, I think, than just being purely promotive. That was a pr- participation. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. But look, there like, was still like even in the us volunteering at the food bank. There's still an exchange. There's still dopamine hits because it feels good you'll know more about that like mm. it's there's like it feels uh, uh, good to go yeah. do that it's team building so the company benefits from us working more sure. together uh, like there's all these benefits i mean in a sense like you're doing that work and there is an exchange right there's like a consideration is an exchange and yeah i'm not lying about that that's there yeah but it's it's but but that's kind of in a sense a lot of the corporate social responsibility and a lot of yeah. companies going out and doing public good or donating to organizations. Mm-hmm. Look at us. There's this. there's always going to be an element of that, probably, unless yeah. your mother Teresa, maybe. And even <laughs> then, still, you she know, was finding joy. She did it all for herself. Like, for sure. Selfish bitch. Yeah. Like, well, she was. <laughs> I mean, she was finding joy and she was serving God. So the Nietzschean criticism right. of her is that she was doing it as an instrumental means, not an end in mm-hmm. itself. She was doing it in order to please God. So then she wasn't truly caring about the children. She was really just using them as an instrument for spirituality. So this is a really complex issue, and I don't know, but I don't think that we need to be so hard on ourselves because we get some sort of dopamine rush from serving people. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, just because you're feeling good about yourself, then that contaminates your intentions. And I'm not sure. I think we're far more complex creatures, and I don't think that we should beat ourselves up for deriving joy from helping other people. You're right. And Francis Ungria is saying I should please return to the Elizabeth Holmes fake deep voice. So for the rest of this podcast, I'm going to try to hold it because I want to be a good performer. All right. Uh, We're going to do one more voicemail, one more email. Should we do office space or flat earth? I think we should do office space first because we're talking about offices. All right. So this is from Josh. Hey, guys. Uh, This is Josh out of Nashville. I just finished uh, listening to the office space episode you guys are um i'm appreciating you guys i'm so thankful for your intelligent um review of uh film both high-minded and low-minded um so but i wanted to share a thought i had you guys were talking about um properly motivating people in in a company and how how managers get it wrong and uh so i'm I'm actually um um and uh i hate the term entrepreneur it sounds so wanky, but I, I am an entrepreneur and I, I do employ people here in Nashville and uh and I kinda see this is kind of my theory. I'd love your thought on it, especially would love Austin's thought on the on this. Um basically I, I kinda see motivation or I see work kind of I see multiple currencies. People tend to think in terms of money, like uh how much is this, how much do I make per per year, how much do I make per hour, especially in the um service industry. And what they should be thinking about and how managers and employees should be thinking is there there actually are multiple currencies. There's there's money, there's time, there's other benefits or other compensations, uh, there's stress, there's meaning, there's autonomy, and there's security. So so who who is making more money? The the the, the person in rural Arizona making forty thousand a year working you know, 40 hours a week with uh, with high security, low autonomy, uh, low cost of living and, and benefits, 
or is it the the high powered lawyer making uh, one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year in Manhattan who has to work eighty hours a week and has a lot of stress and a lot of um, uh, a lot of autonomy, but 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 a lot of uh, but low security, or is it the the, the person raising thirty thousand dollars a year just to get by while he digs wells in Africa, uh, who is doing something meaningful to him, but he has no job security, no benefits. Who's actually making more money? Uh, and, and and the answer is well, it depends on, on the on the person. Uh, and unfortunately, companies love to talk about benefits and 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 uh, money, but never quite talk about time or the sense of autonomy you might have or, or ability to make your own decisions on the job. Uh, and, and all of these, all of these things are currencies that we trade in uh, and we trade one for the other. Um, and if managers started thinking more like that, almost like a, like a, like a, like a scoring system, you know, this job ranks seven in security and five in benefits and eight in money and four in time. I don't know. If people started thinking more like that, they would make better decisions with their, with their, with their careers and managers would know how to how to motive it actually just cuts off there i didn't cut him off. oh wow well okay i think he was gonna say how to motivate people better yeah. it mm-hmm. sounded like is what he was gonna say thanks for the voicemail yeah sorry thanks for the voicemail God, I forgot. <laughs> i'm so sorry dude can you imagine elizabeth holmes she never no. forgets she never, yeah. forgets. No, she <laughs> never yeah. let it slip i've heard she it was slip. always on i've heard it slip and then her correct herself in the middle of her there talking. was a slip oh, and it's mentioned in the john excuse carrier me. book excuse me okay anyway back to josh's question so austin he specifically wanted to hear your yeah. thoughts so let's hear it uh i mean just very shortly there are psychological experiments that demonstrate that sort of like negative reinforcement doesn't actually uh, produce the type of uh, motivation that positive reinforcement does. And so one of the things that sounds like that what Josh is indicating is that there are ways to positively motivate and to reinforce employees. Um, but rather than just through like a system of rewards, like if you work harder, I will give you more money, but it's more about trying to figure out how is it do we attach ourselves to the larger social sphere as we realize the value or the meaning that we are kind of producing or taking part in within our daily labor. The problem is is that under the current system, and I know that I kind of seem to be just this like boring anti-capitalist, but you have to remember capitalism is great in terms of producing wealth, but at the same time, it doesn't like solve all of our social ills like so many people want to argue that it does. And this is one of the things that you find at the beginning of Adam Smith's book on Wealth of Nations where he talks about the division of labor and then Marx spends a lot of time uh, with the division of labor and capital. And then even people like Emile Durkheim who's a sociologist from the 20th century or or 19th, 20th century who talks a lot about this as well um, with the idea that what happens, like what are the consequences of when you de-skill labor and you just become a worker that is just either working for money or that is performing sort of like a sort of trivial repetitive task? In what way does that like alienate you from these other potential spheres of meaning that ought to define the human experience. And Mm. from my perspective, I think Josh is right that there are ways to motivate people that would move us beyond the reduction of social life and human life that occurs under Mm -hmm. the capitalist division of labor. The question is how do you do that within a capitalist framework. And so you get a lot of people like Jeremy Rifkin who talks about like the post-capitalist society through technology and through uh, becoming like an entrepreneur of the self and using these various like uh, 3D printing technologies where you can just become your own sort of um, single entity business and just rely on the tools of automation and stuff like that. Will that get us to a more sort of human uh, perspective on meaning and value and security and all these other things? I don't know. 
I don't know. And then, oh, real quick, the last thing I wanted to say, for people listening, what he was talking about reminded me a lot of Tim Ferriss. Did you guys read Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week? I do. I was thinking about the Four Hour Work Week. I didn't read it, but I know of it. And, yeah. Yeah. Like that's that the idea. It's like similar. who really yeah. is making more money, so to speak, or who is kind of having a more valuable existence? Is it the lawyer that's working yeah. eighty hours a week and making a hundred grand, or is it the person who works four hours a week making forty grand but is able to travel and surf and um, mm-hmm. spend time building meaningful relationships? The problem is, is, is what do we value as human beings? And I think that one of the things that we denigrate under contemporary late capitalist conditions is we denigrate social value. We denigrate community. We denigrate the pursuits of spirituality. Um, those things become less important. And I think that that's, that does a disservice to what it means to be like a human participant. All right. So I uh, want to... Let's get one more question, uh, but real quick, I want to shout out to Aaron. He sent us an email about the Flat Earth documentary. He pointed out that the Flat Earthers were watching Dark City about halfway through the documentary. I mentioned that I knew they were watching a movie, but I didn't know it was Dark City, and I have seen Dark City, and this is pretty smart. As Aaron says, Dark City is about a self-contained, domed, and flat world where everything is controlled by a shadowy, powerful group of people in the movie, in the case Aliens, so it was very relevant that that's the movie that they were watching. But anyway, the last question for today before we sign off is from Kane. Kane says, I was just listening to the recent podcast on Behind the Curve, and I think an interesting aspect of the documentary that wasn't really mentioned is that the Flat Earther communities are using conspiracies to discredit some of the bigger players in the group. The guy who Mark says wants to be the king of the Flat Earthers regularly goes on live streams and podcasts to say that Mark works for the CIA and Warner Brothers and so on. Uh, Patricia Sear in particular gets a hard time for some of the members saying she's a man and having to show her birth certificate. Patricia says herself that she can't disprove the allegations against her and that she's the only one that really knows the truth. Uh, And he says, I think it's interesting. We'd like to hear your take on it. Kane, my take on it is that this is a good thing because this is the kind of things, this line that you wrote right here, Patricia says she can't disprove the allegations against her and that she's the only one that really knows it. This is the same logic that the flat earthers use to suggest that the world is flat and to constantly basically put forward these questions that can't be falsified at least quickly before they ask like 70 million other questions. So there's even a part in the documentary where she almost gets it. She says something like, you know, and then I think about how their conspiratorial thinking, how do I know I'm not thinking conspiratorial like that? But I know I'm not. And you're you're just like, damn it, she almost got it. Uh, But I think that, you know, if people keep hounding her like that, then maybe that light bulb will go off. Yeah, she'll see it that that way. So I think that I guess it's a good thing if it leads to some sort of epiphany, but who knows? Did any of you guys watch that? I know I'm the only one who was actually here for that that podcast. I, I, I saw the film. I saw the, the Flat Earth documentary, Behind mm-hmm. the Curve. I saw it. I thought it was fascinating. I was thinking, I was wondering, how is Jared going to approach this in the podcast? I know mm. he's not a disrespectful person, so I was like, you're going to approach it with respect, and I think you did on the podcast. That was I tried, but I, I said it's a, it's a conundrum, because even if you say, all right, guys, we need to approach yes. these people with respect, that's already disparaging. You know, like, yes. yeah, mm. you have a point. Yeah, no, you were. It was damned if you do, damned if you. Can don't. you imagine yeah. if, like, you know, like, all right, guy, Helen's on the podcast. Let's all be nice. Like, oh, then that would be just like insulting. Yeah. No, there, it was not. Right? No, it was not. I'm just saying. Side earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> be nice. Yeah. So that's a conundrum that I don't think there's an answer to. But, well, that's we did it, guys. We changed the world, and uh, many people are going to be naysayers, but you know, we did it. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Signing off. Uh, where can we find you guys on the internet? Austin. 
Uh, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y, do a philosophy What's your podcast. Finsta? What's up? What's your Finsta? My Finsta is Foss. <laughs> it's Theranos. Uh, it should be, I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn that you can check out. Um, so yeah, hit me up. And Helen? I'm... I guess I'm on Instagram. I mean, if you, it's at at f l o e r s h at flourish. But uh, if I don't respond to your messages, it's not because I don't want to. It's because I hate Instagram. Sorry. All right, and Jacob and I, unless you want to plug anything, we're wisecrack. But you should check out Father of Woody on Instagram. Instagram. (laughs) You are about to upload upload all the best dog pics on the internet. Okay, so we're going to do the Jordan Peele movie Us. Hopefully, I'll have seen it by then next week. So be sure to tune in for that. And then the week after, I think we're going to do Inglorious Bastards. Yes. So uh, that's it. Thank you guys so much for listening. You want to give us the Ryan shout? Uh, show me what is it? Oh, from Hollywood, from Hollywood, California. This is Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> show me the money. Peace, guys. Peace, everybody. <laughs>